and welcome to another episode of Laying Down the Lore, a monthly podcast in which we aim to separate our ghouls from our goblins, our snotlings from our skaven storm fiends, and our bloodthirsters from our bloodletters, and generally ask what's up with this Warhammer stuff. My name is Ben Crone Barber and I know fuck all about Warhammer. With me is my co-host Christopher Crallen Allen, tank top, who also knows fuck all about Warhammer, tank top, and my dear brother Darren, noodle arm choir boy, who knows so much about Warhammer it's a wonder he has time to do anything else. After gathering online to slay some vermin in the name of Sigmar, this dichotomy between our levels of understanding became clear, and this series is an attempt to address that to ignorance. address that ignorance. Yeah! Hooray! <laughs> to undress that ignorance. That's what I'm doing with these tank tops. I'm undressing the ignorance. Honest to God, Ben, you look like a shit Magic the Gathering card. Unsleeved. <laughs> <laughs> Disarmed and dangerless. <laughs> Right, are you both finished? (laughs) Oh boy, you've got an hour and a half of this. Right, before we start, I want to call me and Kral out on something. So, Kral, episode Mm. 17, intro to the dwarfs. There was a bit where Darren was explaining to us that Kaldor II had 437 grudges in the Great Book of Grudges. So that he had 415 compliments in the Great Book of Compliments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. That's uh, now a thing. But, <laughs> but we talked at odd ends for about 10 minutes, and then Dar eventually said, oh no, sorry, I think there's some confusion. I've obviously not explained myself properly. Kaldor II is a high elf king. And then we mm. both chastised him and put him in the book for mm. not having explained it right. In fact, Chris, mm. you even called him a cunt in the book of grudges mm. in your mm-hmm. grudge. Mm-hmm. In listening back to the episode, it transpires that Darren not only mentioned that he was the High Elf King, he did so mm-hmm. three times. So Darren's going in the book again for incorrectly <laughs> correcting himself. What exactly? What That's a, what exactly. A cunt. I'm so glad that you could see that that was the conclusion of yeah, that whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Okay. Darren. Darren. Being wrong for there we incorrectly. Go. Excellent. Grudge. Oh, he's got his grudge resistant bandana on. Yeah. <laughs> Plus one to grudge resistance. Plus one to grudge resistance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Our grudging has been foiled. All right. So, quick grudges review, Chris. Top two, uh, of course, the first one has to be Darren couldn't locate his book of grudges, which is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, strong grudge. I think that's punishable by death, to be honest. Um, (laughs) And um, also Darren for teaching new words. I don't know the context of that, but that's what I'm going with. Fuck you for teaching new words, Darren. I apologize. apologize. Darren, top two grudges. You actually have your book this time? Yeah, but I have nothing written in it. Hang on, I've got, let's see. No, it was a grudge-free episode for me. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I think if listeners care to review, I think it's all well documented within the episode. I think there was mm. quite a few. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. The top one from last week for me was um, Dar saying things I have to edit out, which I imagine is probably going to be uh, a grudge for this week as well. Um, Crowd for denying BS. Can't remember what that was about. For denying BS. Denying BS. <gasps> it was, was it before Sigmar? I think it was before, before Sigmar. Oh, yeah, it was before yeah, yeah, Sigmar. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
yeah. Ben was being really smug and virtuous about. Perhaps it's 120 BS before Sigma. I was like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping it was going to catch on, but you guys just weren't going with it. So, uh, right. <laughs> what was it? It was BS before Sigma and then after Dominoes. <laughs> after Dominoes. Which is never a happy state, <laughs> is it? Never a happy state. All right. Um, Kral, do you know what time it is? It's time for me to fuck up the recap. Hello, Reitland. It's time for the WhatsApp recap. Oh. All right. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So, yeah, now we've got a jingle, right? That makes us official. It does make it official. It also, now we're semi-sponsored by a family in Germany. on that note we should probably say a big thank you to michael and his two daughters fiona and helena Um, thanks guys right crowd what's that recap what's that recap here we go i'll try not to fuck this one too much last episode the creation of the great vortex was successful and the golden age of the dwarves began there was growth of trade between the dwarves and their new allies the elves Respect grew for Malekith, and there was expansion of Kara's Angkor, their everlasting realm. But then, Ben, betrayal. After 2,000 years of peace, the elves precipitate the devastating War of Vengeance, or the War of the Beards, as the Ponzi elves refer to it, which the wolves eventually win. Um, That was, as I remember, down to Malekith, wasn't it? Malekith was bitter about failing to become the elven high king and yep. so manipulated the situation, ambushed a few dwarven caravans with his dark elf entourage, but they were dressed as high elves. Have I got that right? Yes. Shut the front door. Jesus Christ, you went off piece there, mate. You I went know. off piece. <laughs> and I came back on with both feet. That is outstanding. Whew. Bravo for me. Bravo for me. <laughs> yeah, so that happened. Um, that was shortly followed by mysterious quakes and eruptions that devastated the Dwarven Empire, heralding the time of woes and the horrific events of the Goblin Wars, which Ben is going to enlighten us about. Go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I can't remember either, buddy. There was some Don't beef. Worry about it. Was that... Um, these mysterious quakes and eruptions, did it turn out to be the Skaven device that ruptured half of the planet? Or the Great Cataclysm? Yes, yeah, it, it was the, the device under Skaven Blight that when it was activated, opened up all kinds of rifts and caused earthquakes and geological issues up and down the length of all the, the mountain ranges in Warhammer, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly what Ben just said. And then finally, the collapse of Carrick Ungor, Carrick Vaughn, and Ekrand, together with the losses at Mount Grimfang, and the totally original and not at all copied Mount Gunbad, for which I don't know what Darren's referring to then. <laughs> In The oh. Hobbit, the big legion at the end that comes down for the Battle of Five Armies is out of Mount uh-huh. Gundabad. Oh, Gundabad. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So, yeah, what's that recap? Done. Boom, bam. And I'm down. <laughs> yeah. Mike drop. That's, yeah, not bad, Chris. Not bad. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. See, it's not it's not so fun when I don't fuck it up, is it? It's like, eh. No, right. no, it's not. <laughs> don't worry. We're still at the start of the episode. Don't worry about that. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of time. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> right, Dar. What are we doing? Right, so when we last visited the dwarves a month ago, We had left them halfway through what was called the Time of Woes, so the great struggle that the Dwarven race faced, the encroaching greenskins and the up-tunnelling Skaven. Um, 
they had lost all their holds on the east side of the World's Edge Mountains. So they only had holds now. All their kind of cities were within the mountains themselves or on the old world side of that great spine of rock running down the world. As Chris mentioned in the WhatsApp recap, they had lost a good 10% of their cities. There was mass migration of dwarven refugees throughout the dwarven empire, leading to you know resource issues, but bolstering the defenses of those holes that were still under siege. It also precipitated the start of the Troll Wars, which is kind of a little documented event that happened once a dormant volcano underneath Thunder Mountain in the World's Edge Mountains erupted, causing mass migrations of all various types of trolls, like stone trolls, river trolls, uh, Ikea trolls, but they they come (laughs) flat-packed. YouTube trolls. trolls. After-dinner trolls. Teenage trolls. Brunching um, trolls. <laughs> trolls. Uh, and the rarest of troll, the one that's actually happy, the lol troll. Um, <laughs> that was a long walk for that. So I, my troll, lol, 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 lol. And, the, and the troll that hangs around a lot, the lollygagging troll. <laughs> lollygagging troll. <laughs> um, so we left them roughly 750 years before the formation of the Empire, and we pick up again with the Night Goblins attacking Karak Asgul, where they were ultimately repulsed, but after a siege of almost 10 years after they had gained a foothold within the hold itself. Um, we then, not too much longer after that, Karak Kadrin, if we recall, is the home base of the Slayer cult in the present day where the king takes a slayer oath upon becoming the king. The actual genesis of that tradition happens with uh, Baragor, who is the first slayer king of Karakadrin, takes the oath after his daughter, who is on the way to Karazakarak to marry the high king. Her and her guard were killed by a dragon, and unable to avenge his daughter's death in this terrible slight upon not only his honor but also the honor of the hold as a as a whole. Oh, that's a risky one. <laughs> uh, took took this took the vow and set up the shrine where now, if we recall in the first episode or episode seventeen, that's the one that has the really thin bridge with the bungee jumping slayer dwarves. Jemima, the mine, 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 mine. That one. <laughs> yeah. that's the one Chris. Just a quick question. You said the that the first slayer, the king, he took the oath. Yeah. Was an oath already existing or did he make it up? So if you recall, the oath really came into play once Grimnir disappeared after the Great Vortex was closed. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, what yeah, I'm referring yeah. to is the first king of Karakadron to take mm. the oath was Baragor at that time. And now let me just put you was in the there? So hang on, I'm booking. Uh, Chris, <laughs> not listening. <laughs> Fucking hell. How many are against that? <laughs> well, I, at the at the minute, I'm just doing the apostrophe thing for as above, and he's it's like three pages in um, <laughs> line apostrophe line. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> line apostrophe yeah. line. Um, was the fact that his daughter was killed by a dragon? Does that have anything to do with the career progression of a slayer down? You know, when they come to was it they kill a troll, and if they don't die, they kill a giant. And if they don't yeah. die, then they can go either demons or dragons. Was that already established by that point? Or was the fact that his daughter killed by a dragon, did that kind of 
cement that potential career path for slayers. No, uh, no, I, just imagine it, on LinkedIn, just like a <laughs> uh, giant level slayer dwarf <laughs> <laughs> open to work. <laughs> My day rate is kill me now. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, it, the fact that it was a, a dragon that wiped out the envoy and the daughter is coincidental. They had already right. begun that progression. Um, yeah, it's an interesting. Could a dwarf conceivably go, do you know what? I know I'm so tough that a troll isn't worth it. I'm just going to go straight to giant. Yeah, skip it. Are there overachieving dwarf slayers? That's a question for you, Chris. <laughs> Isn't the point of the Slayer to keep going until either you die or literally you have beat the toughest thing on the planet and there's nothing else to beat, so the chances are you're going to die first anyway. So you may as well go to the very toughest thing, cut out the middleman, and just like get killed by a bloody giant, giant dragon or something. No, like that. I, I had it backwards in my head. I think an overachieving Dwarf Slayer is someone who runs at a troll but trips and falls on their axe. <laughs> <laughs> so they die they die in combat with a troll but just before they actually reach the troll but hold on it, what chris said is that accurate like if they kill the biggest strongest thing in the warhammer world surely the whole thing about shame still applies like they could be deemed that their it could be deemed that their shame is still so great that even killing the most powerful thing on the planet wasn't enough to to get rid of it I think the size of the shame doesn't really matter or the events of the shame. Um, it's how they use it. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's the motion of the ocean. <laughs> so really what, what, what you're implying there, that scene in Game of Thrones where your one's walking behind the queen going, shame, shame. That was an advertising <laughs> campaign rather than chastising. Join Slayers today. <laughs> Join Slayers today. Uh, no, it, the only way a slayer can redeem themselves is in death. So if they kill the toughest thing they come across... Uh, then they and, become the like, toughest it, thing, so they should just slit their own throat. <laughs> huh? Right? No, because huh? that would be against dwarf law. That would be a betrayal of their king. Because oh, you're denying uh, the king a good warrior. I see. Okay. Mm, mm, but like mm. if a slayer got to the end of that journey he's killed the most powerful thing like what what's left then what what, what does he do because he can't he can't kill himself because it would betray the king and the king needs to have slayers fighting for him but like the agreement was he would get into being a slayer in order to find glorious death yes i think they stay at the level they stay at i think his demon slayer is the toughest so they stay a demon slayer until they face a demon they can't um, they can't uh, defeat okay. so it's uh. also like once you get into those kind of higher echelons like the dragon and demon slayer the dwarven royalty really use you as a guided missile use you as like mm. <laughs> a guided uh, dwarf slayer which makes me think they must have like lobbed them from stone throwers <laughs> into enemy armies and stuff so you've got these kind of half-naked, tattooed, redhead dwarves flying right at you. Christ, it's like a night out in Dundee. Just like passing a doom diver mid-air and high-fiving yeah. each other. <laughs> With an axe. <laughs> <Funk. clears throat> yeah, I'm now just thinking, because you have like surface-to-air slayer defense systems. <laughs> <laughs> There's a wyvern coming in. Load me up, boys. Uh. 
It would just be a modified version of that axe thrower, wouldn't it? Just yeah. like two arms, just going bang, bang, bang. And just a row of slayers just behind it, just running and jumping on it. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Surface to air dwarves. <laughs> Surface to air dwarves. Are you a slayer that can I find a worthy enough opponent to redeem your shame? You may be thinking that your shame is just so great that Gotrak himself couldn't look you in the eye. Or maybe you just haven't looked in the right places. Join SlayerNet today, the leading network platform for slayers of all abilities looking to end their life in the most outrageous way imaginable. 82% of our members have found their demise in their first engagement through the SlayerNet network. Just ask these satisfied users. If they are alive, they tell you that our unique runes of matching uses a powerful blend of the winds of Shaish and Gur, so you can finally take that dirt nap shame-free. From lollygagging trolls to lobster claw chicken leg chaos demons. Slayernet's vast database of unworldly beasts and monsters are guaranteed to get you immortally challenged. Slayernet. Log on today, or die trying. The situation with uh, the kings of Karakadron highlights that a king's debt to his followers e even trumps the oath to a slayer. But... Given that it's only really happened once, it could just be an anachronistic interpretation of the responsibilities of a king versus the oath of a slayer. Because certainly over the past 3,000 years in Warhammer, there's been a few kings and high kings that have been shamed and just taken the oath and, uh, and handed off their crown. So it could be it's dealt with a case-by-case -case basis. Mm. Okay. The next big event, we're getting close to the end of the Goblin Wars now. Uh, ultimately, there's a 50-year period where the dwarves lose three of their strongest holds, including their second strongest outside of the capital, which is Karak Eight Peaks. If you recall, that's, that's the one that looks like a kind of massive stone crown. There's eight peaks around their thing, and it's full of no uh, precious minerals. And we'll just skirt past the sarcastic no way. <laughs> <laughs> so really the um, fall of Karak Eight Peaks this is where the full horror of the Skaven war machine is on display Clan Scryer has had a thousand years to develop warp gas warp fire throwers the mining drills the tunnelers the rat ogres and against this the dwarves have also escalated their war machine so in response to the Poison wind globideers and the warp fire throwers. The iron breakers, if you recall, the iron breakers are a specialized army within each dwarf hold that patrols and protects the lower depths and fights off incursions from principally Skaven and night goblins. The iron breakers developed a kind of support regiment called the iron drakes, effectively, a single dwarf version of a warp fire thrower that uses gunpowder and special kind of runes on the gun itself to flamethrow through Skaven ranks, but also it combats the gas. It burns off the poisoned wind. Mm. Um, Useful. But ultimately, the Skaven rise up through the Dwarven Hold and um, occupy the entire thing. So 
High King Lun, or the King Lun of Karakate Peaks, seals up all the tombs of these ancestors with powerful runic magic, which effectively is like a force field within each uh, sepulchre, which stops anyone getting in, including dwarves. They would need a runesmith to come along and break the runes to get back in. So with his ancestors protected, as, as far as they're aware, it was abandoned in its totality with the population and military might added to the dwarven citadels and fortresses that still existed. But that was a huge blow to the dwarven empire because that's the second largest city. Huge amounts of resources were captured and the mining systems underneath that lost for eternity, really. Poor dwarves can't get a break. And as I say, within... What, within 50 years, another two holds were lost. We we're looking at Carrick mm. Asgal, which had been under siege already, where the night goblins had managed to get a foothold in there for the bones of 300 years. There'd been constant skirmishes. The front lines had moved back and forward, but really only by a, a question of feet. Go ahead. The fall of all these citadels and holes, this was all thanks to the uh, the quakes and eruptions due to the Skaven device that exploded underground, which allowed the goblins and greenskins and other nasties to get up and around them. That was a question. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. If the greenskins hadn't migrated across the Darklands into the World's Edge Mountains, they would just simply be facing the Skaven in a similar mm. battle. Sure. Yeah, almost all of the dwarven holds have, I really don't know how to say this, they have an exposed bottom to penetration mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. ratmen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's how you say it. Yeah, I think that is how. That was also a test because it looked like Ben had actually fallen asleep after picking his feet on camera. <laughs> Did you see that? Yes, oh, of course sorry. I saw that. Sorry. Yeah, Ben, your camera's yeah, on. I don't know if you realized that. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's just a bit of fluff, man. It was staring at me. Oh dear. So that is what Chris described. That is the great cataclysm, is it not? That's what you've called it in the past? The Skaven device? Uh, the Skaven device, yeah. The Dwarven cataclysm, yeah. Right. So do you think the goblins and the Skaven would still have been able to get in without that? Like, would they have been able to tunnel into the holds from underneath? Because they have their own tunneling systems and whatnot. I think they? it was largely going to be inevitable. Even if they hadn't been able to split open the roots of the mountain ranges and get through, they would have, Clan Scryer would eventually have created these huge tunneling war machines and they mm. would have made their way. So it maybe accelerated the conflict by a thousand years, but there was no mm. way this wasn't going to happen with the expansionist mm. nature of uh, Skaven. And the fact that it paired up with the migration of the Greenskins really spelled mm. for happy fun times for the dwarves, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. The other holds that were destroyed, so Karak Asgal, as we've mentioned, had already been under siege by night goblins. They had a, a strong foothold there. And then suddenly, dragons. A dragon appeared and uh, they say routed out <laughs> dragon dwarven forces. Yeah, Shazam! Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, the top two-thirds of the entire dwarven hold became the kingdom of a single dragon who drove out the entirety of the dwarf populace. And Holy again, shit. these dwarves migrated to other holds and fortresses to shore up the defences. But what you're seeing is the really strong erosion of dwarven influence within their own realm. Mr. Right. Chris. 
the dragon, was this in the same hold as where the Skaven and goblins and greenskins invaded? And if so, how did the dragons and the greenskins react to one another? Were they quite cool? Were they like, hey, brah? No, because the dragon was after the resources, the gold, the treasure. Uh, And goblins, in general, are terrified of dragons and won't Mm. go anywhere near them unless it's en masse. And because Mm. the dragon had control over the larger halls, it was more maneuverable and could breathe fire. And, and, you know, the dragons in Warhammer are pretty interesting because up until about 5th or 6th edition, the dragons not only could breathe various types of breath on enemies, but they're also very <laughs> various sp- types of breath, like fire breath, kebab breath, <laughs> yeah, garlic breath, <laughs> <laughs> onion breath. <laughs> um, so yeah, dragons really hit everyone, up to and including other dragons. But there are also really strong magic users. Uh, okay. Up until later editions of Warhammer, where they kind of were dumbed down to make yeah, to make yeah. them more bestial than an intelligent power, which they used to be. It's still in the lore that they used to be incredibly yeah. intelligent, and the world was ruled by them. Yeah, uh, massive dragons. Okay. They can fly, breathe various types of breath at you, use magic, super strong. They seem a bit, yeah, OP. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> What's the deal with dragons and treasure? Why the fuck is it that they're obsessed with treasure? Because they can't do anything with it, can they? I don't know. They can sleep on it. Maybe they use it as kind of a, a clinky flashlight. I don't know. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Okay. Right. All right. <laughs> it's like catnip for dragons. <laughs> Start like rolling around on their back, wide eyed. <laughs> <laughs> what what we hear as like dragon roars coming from the mountains is actually the dragons going oh fuck yeah <laughs> and so then the final one was a uh, Karak Draz which the greenskins took over and renamed the Black Crag so with that and became the coolest gay hangout bar in all of the Southlands <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to ask how you got there. <laughs> uh, black crag. Black crag. Hey, you going down the crag? Oh, you know it, baby. <laughs> yeah, this has gone off the rails already. <laughs> so ultimately, that led all the mountain passes between Mad Dog Pass and Fire Mountain were taken over, except for one, which was Karak Azul, which is the Silver Spear. And it's still holding out to this day, thousands of years later, principally due to the sheer volume of dwarves that fled from the other holds. It was the one that absorbed them all and was very Mm. pro-immigration. You know, everyone Mm -hmm. was allowed to work and pay taxes. It, you know, and and defend their new fold. So yeah, it sounded like you've got all your dwarven eggs in one basket, as it were. You know, and should anyone be so inclined, if you wanted to wipe out the dwarves, that's the place you want to nuke. For jump. Well, I wouldn't really, because given where it is and what it overlooks, their surface-to-air dwarf capacity is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and they ain't short of dwarven ammo, that's for sure. They ain't short of dwarven ammo. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of redheads that live in that dwarf hold is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> 
with those three holes gone, it really was a punch in the kind of cultural soul of the dwarves. You saw a lot of populist migration. You saw the Grey Mountains being populated in earnest for the first time as they were more peaceful and further away from the Greenskins. And so as the time of woes comes to an end, the dwarves really are isolated. They've locked their holds to the outside world in reality, sending out various expeditions. But they've been at war for, what, 3,000 years? Constantly? First against the elves, then against the greenskins. And so at that stage, they really are a dying race. You know, the writing, is the, the runic script is on the walls for them. But as they expand throughout the old world, or what would become the old world, they keep bumping into these kind of savage, slightly taller guys who are the humans. So the humans really are, I think, somewhere around like the Bronze Age. So they have armor. There is a developed society for them. Iron is starting to be used. So over a few hundred years, they realize that this race actually is fighting against the greenskin menace as much as we are, but they're still not winning. But they have a huge spirit for freedom and fighting and really want their own land. So they view them as a potential ally that could take care of the above ground world while the dwarves are fighting a retreating action against the stuff that's coming up from underground. So what they start to do is they start to trade uh, they start ad hoc alliances with individual tribes within the old world. And we're talking now from all the human realms. So we're looking at what would become the Empire, what would become Bretonia, uh, Estalia, Tilia. Um, Brother and sister. Word. <laughs> uh, and um, ultimately, there's such trade going on that one of the Dwarven High Kings joins a trade caravan, which is unfortunately captured by the Greenskins. And then we see a hero of legend, which we have covered somewhat ironically in the Greenskin episodes, um, <laughs> come forward, great old Sigmar himself, chief of the Umbarogan tribe, or sorry, he's a prince of the Umbarogan tribe. And just to recap the battle, the humans come across the greenskin army that has the the goods of the dwarven caravan and the dwarven hiking and his all his guys imprisoned. Sigmar takes this as a, an insult because there's a kind of burgeoning trade, a burgeoning kind of racial alliance between dwarves and humans. He sets about the orc chieftain. Dwarf King sees this and throws Galmaraz, which is also known as Skull Splitter, to the young prince, who then uses it to split the skull of the warlord. He ron-sealed him. And ron-sealed a bang. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and in, so, in so doing, starts the foundation of the alliance between the dwarves and the humans. So when the dwarves came across the humans for the first time, how did they talk to each other? Because surely the do the war, dwarves have their own language, right? Yes, Kazilage, yeah. They didn't speak common at that point. Common didn't exist at that point. Right, okay. So how did they communicate? It's a great question. I think actions speak louder than words. I think there's dwarves maybe came to the defense of humans or humans came to the aid of dwarves, you know, and it, it snowballed from there with you know, indiv individual relationships and, and friendships developing up, which led to a kind of cultural detente. And then, I mean, it's recorded that dwarves actually gave wagon loads of arms and armor to human tribes. 
without any kind of expectation of repayment because the dwarves are actually using humans to shore up their defenses. So right, yeah, yeah. the fact that these bodies would be, you know, clad in superior armor, able to cut through greenskin ranks was payment in and of itself. It bought the dwarves uh, time. Okay. But but it's a great question. Development of language in Warhammer probably deserves a, at least a, a, a six or seven minute chat in another episode. Yeah. For shizzle. Um, I think it was a combination of that as well as um, circumstantial encounter between a dwarf and a human at the Black Crag Gay Club as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a knowing glance across the dance floor. And I was like, all right, we'd... <laughs> speak that dwarfish to me. <laughs> yeah, you're on your own there, mate. Yeah. I'm not laughing at this. This is not me laughing nope, at not... this. <laughs> <laughs> You seem nice, but I'm really attracted. I'm really attracted to angry redheads <laughs> who can fly. <laughs> um, yeah. So ultimately, the result of saving the dwarven high king led directly to the battle of sideways skyscrapers, a backfire pass, <laughs> uh, and and the formation of the empire. You know, Sigmar rallied all the tribes, the 12 tribes of humanity that dwelt in the what would become the empire, guided them down to Blackfire Pass. If you recall, there was a huge meetup, a huge parley of the human tribes where the chief objector, if I remember correctly, the, the chief that was objecting to it had a heart attack because he was so excited to go and fight. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, and this ultimately led the whole of humanity, the whole kind of forces of the, those twelve tribes, to smash. Was that because through. he got tromboned? Yes, uh, that yeah. was the, that was it. Was the great tromboning, wasn't it? To the uh, yeah. backing music of "When Twelve Tribes Go to War, Go to War, <laughs> Go to War." <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, and now to the black rag. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Marty's getting the drinks. <laughs> <sighs> Once the kind of main force of greenskins within the old world was decimated, really, the time of woes came to an end. And so what happened then was the dwarves transitioned, very careful, transitioned <laughs> from... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have laughed if you hadn't said it like that. <laughs> The Dwarven calendar shifted from the time of woes to what's called the Age of Men, which, given the context of that nightclub, is really terrifying. Um, <laughs> you do have a way with words sometimes. Like it's when you're talking about one of the previous battles and you were like, and armor was being penetrated. <laughs> I was like, penetrated. none of us would have picked up on that if you hadn't said it like that. <laughs> I'm playing to the audience. I'm playing to the audience. Uh-huh. But it, it also became known as the Silver Age, and that really is an age of reconstruction and prosperity for the dwarves. So it pretty much matches up with the imperial calendar. Really, it starts when Sigmar saved the Dwarven High King. That's when the Age of Men, or the Silver Age of Dwarves, began, because that's when they start making great gains against their losses. Um, mm-hmm. You start seeing... The dwarves retake some of the smaller holds, start to repopulate towns and villages around some of the holds that are still to this day populated by greenskins or skaven. But there's a dwarven presence there that skirmishes out and tries to work out how to retake things. You also saw 
over a few hundred years, the kind of rise of the imperial dwarves. Now, we, we dealt with that in um, episode 17, where the imperial dwarves are dwarves that still largely hold to dwarven culture, but live in the empire. They are uh, treated mm-hmm. as both imperial citizens and also dwarven citizens. You know, and, and they're doing that to honour the relationship and alliance with humanity. They're still kind of looked down upon by the other dwarves, the traditional dwarves. Well, traditional dwarves look down on pretty much everyone that isn't themselves. Uh, right. So, okay. you know, the dwarven capital, Karazakarak, is pretty cosmopolitan by dwarf standards. It's really the northern dwarves, the dwarves of the northern holds that are traditionalists and they they espouse traditional dwarf values. They don't use any kind of gunpowder weapons at all. It's all, you know, magic Choppy, choppy. Um, weapons. Yeah, way, magic weapons, crossbows, and stone and bolt throwers and grudge throwers as well. They don't have cannons, organ guns, gyrocopters, anything like that. None anything of that foreign book. Oh, no, no. None of <laughs> no, that no. newfangled Gallic stuff. bread. They would have absolutely <laughs> no dealings with Apple whatsoever. Either, yeah, right, you know, right, the technology yeah. company or indeed the fruit. Um, Nokia or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a Nokia can would be amazing, firing everlasting phones at people. <laughs> never break. Nokia 3210s, bomb-proof. New from the Fun Forge, it's the Battle Hammer of Silver Age of Sigman, trademark. Recreate famous battles from our race's Silver Age with amazingly detailed figurines. Each box comes with two forces, the stalwart Runekin, trademark, and the vicious arboreal hackers, trademark. Scenery, including our patented sky walls, trademark, a rule tome and a 700-page pamphlet on the Dwarven Intellectual Property Guidelines. An easy-to-follow narrative campaign, including such events as the Battles for Bleak Fire Pass, trademark, 1 through 44. The Sieges of Karak Nine Peaks, trademark 1 through 12, and the infamous Dong of Grudge, trademark. Within the next year, we will release two further armies the weakened, traitorous Fakin, trademark, and the verminous, rat like Sneakin, trademark. Battlehammer, it's not for the poor. So over the next thousand years, dwarves really, in earnest, begin either um, consolidating, consolidating. Consolidating. They consolidate their consolidate. Ooh, no, that's uh, something you do down the black crag, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell. (sighs) Darren, you look like you're imagining it. (laughs) No. Consolidate this. I'm just, I'm just doing my I'm just doing my kegels. Um, <laughs> so you're seeing dwarves begin mining efforts again in earnest. They're building new holes and fortresses around not only the mountain ranges but also within the old world itself. And this alliance with the empire is so strong that they will even stand with the Empire against other human races, other human countries. So you're looking at, like, the dwarves of the Grey Mountains stood with the Empire in a war against Bretonia. So they'll give 
humans the benefit of the doubt, but really they're they're strong, solid uh, allies of the empire itself. Um, mm, okay. Although they do have a strained relationship with Britonia because Britonia is actually the country that founded the Border Princes as part of the Errantry War, which we'll cover when we cover Britonia. And once Britonia occupied that section of land, if you'll recall, that's where Barakvar, the naval port, is. That a lot of dwarven holds are around that area. So relationships, right. again, based on humanity fighting against greenskins and the dwarves mm. happily giving weapons and support to people that mm. do that. Nice. Nice. So uh, w- while these dwarves are making these great gains and kind of resurging as a race, they're still at their core dwarves. They still bear grudges. They still go to war over what we would view as the smallest thing. And encapsulated that is the War of the Hammer, where a dwarven ancestral heirloom was taken as a prize of battle by a force of tomb kings from the city of Marak. So a force of dwarves went down to the city of Marak to regain the hammer. And in in this huge battle, you've got something like a dragon slayer during the attack. Dragon slayer, drong stern beater. Wait for jokes. (laughs) I hate that I'm doing this to myself. Yeah, that kind of idea. (laughs) The dragon slayer, drong stern beater is turned to sand when he charges against the Tomb King forces, which leads to all the Dwarven Slayers being so outraged that he died before he was able to get into battle. Talk about a callback to earlier in the episode. Wow. Uh, That a thousand Slayers, a force of a thousand Slayers within the army goes absolutely mental and just decimates the Tomb King army, allowing the Dwarves to regain the Hammer of Algrim which is the item they were after. And pulling it back then to their, their hold of Karak Azul, it then gets into this kind of cultural yo-yoing where a Tomb King force comes up, invades, and steals the hammer back. And they only want the hammer because there's a very small bronze disc on it that belongs to the Tomb King in charge of, or who holds the, the kingship of Marak, who's called King Alcaharda. Alcarad? Alcarad. I almost said King Alcacel, sir. <laughs> He's a different, different dude. Different dude. <laughs> this is a little bronze, just a little kind of little bronze disc. But this is the thing: is the Tomb Kings view their own possessions with as much kind of possessiveness as the Dwarves. So the Dwarves wanted the hammer back, and the Tomb Kings wanted the little bronze disc. But over a thousand years, it went back and forward over a dozen times. Whereas no one thought, hang on, this little bronze disc doesn't belong to the hammer. Snip and just leave it in the desert. And then I, that was. I was going to say, couldn't the tombkins just have asked politely? Just said, "Dude, you've got my little bronze thing. Can we just have that back? Keep the fucking hammer, bro." <laughs> yeah, and how did it get on there in the first place? It's a an item from an alien culture, so the Tomb Kings wanted to show that it belonged to them. So it was given perhaps some decoration of the Tomb Kings, and the Tomb Kings are sick to death of treasure hunters, so they viewed it as their spoil of war, their treasure. So when the dwarves came Uh, to get it, if it didn't have that disc on it, the Tomb Kings wouldn't have given a shit, really. I mean, apart from avenging an invasion. But yeah, that kind of encapsulates the dwarven attitude to vengeance and what have you. 
So as the centuries progress, the dwarves are exploring. They come across the wood elves in Athalorn. There's some patrol that gets sent out. And you have to remember that they believe that the elves fled in their entirety. Mm, mm. So to come across a, a colony of elves, the patrol instantly attacked and was instantly porcupine to death. That's cool. not a euphemism. They were covered in so many arrows, they looked like porcupines. That's what you get. And then that's where all their ancestral and racial grudges were brought to bear once more. And there's been constant acrimony and fighting between wood elves and dwarves. Uh, dwarves view Athalorn as a lumber resource. Uh, and, you know, so, so they're going in, chopping down trees as fast as they can before everyone starts dying. Um, <laughs> so they're constantly fighting against dryads and tree men and the actual elves themselves. I would have just harvested wood from a less hostile forest. That's just me. Or was this particularly awesome wood? Did like, you forget the story cool. that we just told about the little bronze disc and that the dwarves don't really give a fuck? The bronze <laughs> what now? Theirs. The bronze what now? <laughs> <laughs> So it was just principle for them. They were like, no, we want that fucking wood, and yeah. we're just going to fucking take it. And in fact, the more you come at us, the more we're going to make a point and just come back. And yeah, dicks. Yeah. So they were, because they usually use, is it iron bark? Is that the tree that they use for their woody requirements? Well, remember, that's like the gold of wood. So that's oh, okay, their, the right. most precious, that's the stuff they use for the most idealized, precious, and magical instrument. Like they use it for the handles of axes, that kind of idea. Right. That would be magical. But they, but they would still have use for other more standard woods. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, okay. It's like using gold foil instead of aluminium foil. It's that kind of idea. Aluminum. <laughs> Aluminum. <laughs> Aluminum, nom, 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 nom. I love the whites of eggs. <laughs> that was an albumum joke. You can both go fuck yourself. <laughs> no, I got it. It was just absolute dog shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like... <laughs> 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 so as as the years continue, the dwarves fall into overall a time of relative peace. There are wars pop up every century or so that last 30 or 40 years but compared to the time of woes the dwarves are in happy fun time land um, oh, I mean nice. the thing that they do start encountering more and more are the forces of chaos as chaos begins to manifest itself once again and there's three great stories three great battles the first being the war for Karak Gulag which is, you know, just you hear the name, you think, oh, that's, you know, sun dappled beaches, that kind of idea. Um, <laughs> Camp Gulag. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Where a, de a demon prince called Valkia the Bloody, who is in fact one of the few female chaos champions in the official lore, you know, modern day Warhammer is open to everyone, as it should be, but there were very few iconic female characters in fantasy that weren't elven. And maybe the Bretonian version of Joan of Arc, but that was really it. So Valkyrie the Bloody is... I think you showed us a, a picture of her. Is she kind of... Does she have wings? The, the yes. Mini? Yeah, I think you showed it like like right back in the intro episodes where you yeah, mentioned yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So position after position is just overwhelmed by frothing madmen in the shape of beefcake Vikings, um, <laughs> all of whom 
are dedicated to spilling blood and taking skulls and they don't care you know whose blood it is or whose skull it is up to and including their own so they erode the defenses just with sheer ferocity and numbers and the dwarves put up a great defense against it and so in her frustration she sends in the blood reaper knights which are her elite chaos warrior cavalry so these guys have not only are they bedecked in chaos enchanted plate mail but their their steeds are they've got demonic lances this kind of proper kind of hell rider concepts of evil cavalry Yes. Uh, and as more and more positions are taken, ultimately the hold falls. And in a great give praise to Corn, Valkia has every single defender has their chest ripped open and their lungs pulled out to form the Blood Raven. Um, and this is such a wholesale slaughter of an entire city of dwarves that Corn himself or itself declares that Valkia is now, in fact, his consort. She is wow. his kind of really, I was going to say sexual partner, but Corn, yeah, I don't know. Consort, you know, second concubine. in command? No. Yeah, concubine, that kind of idea. Yeah. If there's something that needs doing, he sends her, but it's a weird choice of words, actually. Is the blood raven thing where they pull? That's was that an old Viking thing where they pull the lungs out to look like wings? Yeah. Oh, well, ah, that's the right, blood yeah. eagle. Yeah, blood eagle. Right. Okay. So the yeah. blood eagle is the, the the historical one is they they go in through the back uh, right. and cut away your ribs at your spinal column and then pull your lungs out and drape them over your shoulder. So in Warhammer, <laughs> the blood the blood raven Thanks. is the the the, the frontal <laughs> assault version of that. Jesus fuck. And then there's the blood chaffinch. That's <laughs> <laughs> where they pull out your ears. <laughs> um, then you're looking at Crackadrack, which is not a TV show from the early 90s. And it's very much the same kind of story. A chaos champion called Valmir the Reaper, who is a champion of Nurgle, goes up against the Dwarven Hold, which is defended by King Silverbeard. And in order to defend against the sheer weight of the chaos army and to contend with the nurgly goodness that is wrapped around there the king gets his runesmiths to cause an avalanche not of snow but of the side of the mountain so he causes an enormous landslide which wow. uh, wipes away the chaos forces but again exposes the top lawyers of the Dwarven Hold. So there's now constant skirmishing between the survivors of the Chaos Force and the, the Dwarven Defenders. But yeah, the Dwarves will bring a mountain down on top of you if they're left with no other choice. Mm. Um, so, cool. so again, it goes to their stubbornness. <laughs> but now they've got no roof over their head, though. That was the result, right? That was how desperate yeah. they were. They were like, bring half yeah, the house yeah. down on them. They had to go back to thatch. <laughs> <laughs> But again, it's you know, and and then we get into the the era of the Great War against Chaos, where Magnus the Pious, uh, who is the Prince of Nuln, we'll cover all this when we do Empire. But he leads a force out of Nuln to come up against the great invading force of Chaos, which takes over, pretty much runs Kislev into the ground and turns the city of Prague into a possessed realm of chaos which it's still to this day and that's really just a couple hundred years before the kind of current events um, and yeah, which mm. we'll cover 
next month. But I mean, by all means, the, the dwarves are not only fighting on their own behalf against Chaos, but also against their human allies. They join Magnus, who became then Magnus the Pious, and are real stalwart defenders of the Empire. They were also involved in the Vampire Wars, where the von Karstein clan of vampires out of Sylvania uh, trying to assert their dominance over the Empire, because the when we cover vampires, we'll look at the von Karstein claim to the throne of the Empire. You know, the, the head von Karstein is technically an elector count within the Empire. But um, their great battle was the kind of Battle of Hungerwood, about 500 years before present, which was a huge haunted forest just south of Mordheim. And if we recall, Mordheim is the city that got pummeled by a very, very judgmental comet. Um, by Sigmar. <laughs> so you had dwarves there as well. You had the dwarves come in and hunt out warpstone and treasure within Mordheim. Yeah, and they were involved then in the, the siege of Templehof, which is this great vampire count's fortress slash castle. And they effectively dragged the vampire count, I think it was Emmanuel em von Templehof, pulled her out into the sunlight and the empire and dwarves around had a kind of vampiric uh, marshmallow barf. <laughs> Flambe! Schmore time. So all these events are kind of steamrolling. There's a resurgence of dwarven technology as well during this time. The thing you have to bear in mind is with the loss of all the holes through the time of woes, they lost a lot of the knowledge of certain rune magics and engineering. Um, mm. So they really had to, in some aspects of their culture, had to start from scratch again. So you see runes being rediscovered. And we've got, if we recall, Crag the Grim, who's the oldest dwarf in existence, at well mm. over 1600 years old. Previously, Crag the Slightly Miffed. Slightly myth. I mean, he he created his first rune, or rather forged his first rune, which is the rune of stone, which all dwarves, runesmiths, that's the first thing they do, which is an armor rune. It makes your armor better. It gives it the kind of strength of the mountain. Uh, he did that just before 900 in the imperial calendar, and the current calendar is 2500 and change. So he's been going for quite a while. But during that time, the engineers have come through. So you see the rise of gunpowder weapons, the rise of airships and gyrocopters, the, the huge uh, steam trains that they have pulling ore and troops between holds. Uh, you also got Barak Var. So you see the creation of ironclads, which are these huge, like what we would consider battleships from World War I and early World War II. Those, mm. that's the equivalent technology that the uh, that the ironclads have in terms of firepower. So you've got these big steel ships roaming the seas, patrolling, you know, and expanding dwarven influence. So all of this moves to, at the end of the war, the Great War against Chaos, the king Alaric, or oh, King Alarixen, he returns from the war and there's another few battles and he feels that his energy is spent. His leadership of the Dwarven Empire is uh, not struggling, but he, he sees that the Dwarven holds are beginning to split off from the great unified Dwarven Empire. So he announces his retirement, as it were. And instead of nominating a direct successor, he announces that there's going to be a one-year-long contest and it's open to any dwarf noble and whoever can be the dwarfiest dwarf in uh, <laughs> the kind of uh, sagas and heroic deeds 
will become the high king. So in one fell swoop, he dispenses with the idea of just nominating a successor, but also tries to get the dwarven leadership to reenact deeds of old. And the person that showers themselves with the most glory becomes the high king. And ultimately, and we'll cover this story next month, ultimately, that leads us to Thorgrim Grudgebearer, the dwarfiest dwarf who has ever lived. And that, ladies and gents, is where we will draw a veil for this month. Yeah! Dwarfs! 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 So with the kind of progression of the empire as a whole, sorry, I say the empire, I meant the dwarven empire. Yeah. Is the general, because to begin with, the way you were describing it, it sounded like the general trajectory was one of like, they peaked very early and then it was just the time of woes, like just constantly going down. But it sounds like it picks back up again. And so that kind of upward trajectory, does that kind of maintain until the end times? Or is there further diminishing of the, the whole, the kind of dwarven society as a whole before we get to that end point? Uh, I think that without the end times, the dwarves would be a resurgent force within Warhammer. Oh, uh, the end times puts pay to all of that. Yeah. With the great invasion of chaos, like dwarf hold after dwarf hold is taken, the dwarves are slaughtered, and they're, they really become just, uh, at the end of it, there, there is an army, but it's made up of, you know, a few thousand rather than the hundreds of thousands that exist when Thorgrim Grudgebearer becomes the High King. I mean, Karazakarak has something like 247,000 dwarves in it. You blimey. Uh, And and the expanded, you know, and obviously plus that up. So there are a million plus dwarves that exist dotted around Warhammer. In terms of technology, that this really is the peak. The gyrocopter really is the kind of peak of dwarven technology in terms of the efficiency of steam engines, the capacity to fly, and therefore the capacity to trade and have aerial dominance over their surroundings and attack things from afar. Which brings to question, there are surface-to-air dwarfs. Are there air-to-surface dwarfs? <laughs> what, bombs? Well, you've got dwarf the- bombs. Yeah. <laughs> you've got the bridge, haven't you? What they kind of throw themselves off of. Yeah. Yeah. They just feed a couple of them like loads and then just pile them in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dwarf bomb. It occurs to me the dwarves, um, you know, it was almost inevitable that they were going to come up against some challenges one way or another. Either they lived in these places rich of resource and were just, you know, located in the, in the wrong places for green skins and goblins and scaven to come and get them. Or they just hold such big grudges that they go and look for trouble anyway. Either way, it seems they invite their own demise one way or another. I'm not saying they're asking for it, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) I beg your pardon, I thought you were making a statement. (laughs) Statement made. Thanks. Thanks for that constructive feedback. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yep. Um, The... Dwarves, they will see insult where no insult is. And so if they choose to take offense, which they really have to decide to take offense, then, yeah, there's nothing that's going to stop them picking up their weapons and heading right at you. That goes from individual to settlement to hold to the race in general. Mm, And mm, once mm. a dwarf has decided that he's been insulted, 
then no other dwarf will gainsay what he says happened. And so you suddenly have an entire race out for blood. It's amazing they have any relationships with any other race at all. You know, be it yeah. L2, of course, they fell out within a massive way, and mm. humans too, you know. It's like, Jesus, they are, they are hard work, man. There's a, a cultural inertia of kind of good feeling towards the Empire, because the Empire okay. was there at their darkest moment and has supported them through trade okay. and, and strength of arms as they come through. So there's a kind of general... There, it's it's the difference between dealing with a culture as a whole, but also dealing with individuals. They understand mm. that some individuals are idiots and can be dealt with. Right. Okay. So yeah. So like, if you had uh, a member of the the empire made a slight against an imperial dwarf, then the yeah. whole race doesn't turn against the empire because that, compared to the size of the debt that they owe them, it pales in comparison. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but okay. but that won't stop them going after not only the individual that uh, caused that slight, the individual human that besmirched right. them, but also that individual's allies. And that can lead to war, larger <laughs> political issues. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's how Chris feels about me. I can slight him because my his debt to me no, hold on. <laughs> his debt to me is so great that he just, you know, it pales in comparison. Isn't that right, Chris? That's right. Are we talking about the time when I housed you in between houses when you had no other place to stay? Um, Maybe. Or what? <laughs> which time? Which time? I'm not sure which of those occasions you're referring to. <laughs> right. Are we done? Please. Yeah. All right, that's all from us. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about the topics we've discussed in this podcast, you can find all the reference articles in the show notes or on our website at layingdownthelore.com. We also have all our previous episodes on there, release schedules, merchandise, and you can sign up for the Laying Down the Lore newsletter, which includes exclusive info about upcoming releases, behind-the-scenes chat, and some extra lore not covered in the podcast. Big thank you to all our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do this without you guys. You cover our costs and allow us to spend more time planning content and scripting those ridiculous adverts, not to mention the moral support that we so desperately need. If you're not part of this merry band, you've enjoyed what you've heard in this episode and you want to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash laying down the lore and sign up today. This will give you access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus series, Chunks of Dar, a bi-monthly informal deep dive into the topics discussed in the main podcast, in which Kral and I essentially interrogate Dar. You'll also gain access to our Discord server, which is pretty much Warhammer Banner 24-7 with the three of us and our growing posse of lovely time wasters. We'll be back again next month displaying just how little Chris and I know. Until then, ta-ta! Bye, I'll see you down the Black Crag. Don't go there, you'll end up with a black crag. See you later!